Memoirs of a Mackenzie Friend is sponsored by IamLIP.com. Trigger warning. Memoirs of a Mackenzie Friend deals with the subject of divorce, child custody, domestic abuse, the attitude of public bodies and the family court. Some people may find the content of this episode distressing. Some episodes contain explicit language. My name is Selena. Who am I? I am white, I am black, I am brown, and I am much, much more. I'm a Christian, I'm a Hindu, I'm a Buddhist, I'm a Sikh, I'm a Muslim, I am Catholic, and human to the core. I am every person who did what they were supposed to do, leave and tell. I am every person who was re-abused by the system. I am every person who was disbelieved by the police before I even began to speak my truth. I am every person who faced an unaccountable family court only to be silenced by their orders. I am Anonymous Us and here are our stories. Let me tell you about Sally's story. Sally had been in her abusive marriage for 12 years. He was very charming at first, as they always are. There was all the romance, the sweeping her off her feet, the love bombing. Now and again he could go off on one, be moody, be hurt, be upset. But Sally told herself, teething problems. The first time he hit her, was when Sally was five months pregnant with their first child. Straight away, there were a load of sorries. He didn't mean it. He doesn't know what came over him. He hates himself for ever raising a hand to a woman. He doesn't know what he'd do without her. Would she forgive him? He loved her, but most of all, he would never do it again. And then it happened again. With a load of sorries, I didn't mean it. I don't know what came over me. Please don't leave me. I love you. I don't know what I'd do if you ever left me. And then he hit her again and then again, and then again. And eventually, there were no sorries. No, I don't know what came over him. No, I didn't mean it. He meant it. It was she that came over him. Because she was stupid, she was a dumb bitch, she was thick. It was her fault because she wound him up. And that's one of the important things to know. Because at first, there will be lots of sorries. There will be lots of it will never happen again. I don't know what came over me. But as the abuse continues, and the trauma bond sets in, and the coercive control and the gaslighting starts to take effect, it will eventually go to, well you asked for it, you're to blame, you wound me up, if only you didn't do this, if only you didn't do that, if only, if only, if only. And when they get to a point where the abuse eventually wears them down, that they have no confidence to leave. And that flip from I'm sorry to you asked for it is so important to understand why people don't leave. So in Sally's case, like with many victims, every physical episode, every emotional episode, every psychological episode came with the knocking of her confidence, eventually chaining her to these fearful shackles because he told her if she ever left, he would kill her. And to the outside world, Sally's husband was charming perfect, wonderful, a wonderful family man. And when he was like that, it was wonderful. And wonderful would last for ages, 
Well, until Sally did something to screw it up. When he would hit her, he'd always make sure it was on her body, never on her face. So Sally was never that woman with the black eye, split lip, mismatched concealer, telling the world how she had walked into a door or was just simply clumsy. It was a routine smear test that first alerted a nurse at Sally's GP practice. Thankfully, the nurse in question was trauma-informed and domestic abuse-informed. It had been part of her training in a previous job to look for unexplained bruises and injuries. She had trained at a hospital trust that had systems in place to identify and offer help to abuse victims. So imagine this nurse's shock when she started working for a GP surgery that had no systems in place to help and identify abuse victims. So this nurse, in accordance to her training, broached the subject of Sally's bruises with her. And Sally, like many victims, immediately closed up, deflected, made light of it, said it didn't happen, said she tripped over, said it was an accident, she fell off her bike, she tripped over, her child slammed into her while they were playing football in the park. The usual plethora of responses. But the truth is, Sally wasn't ready to speak about her experience. Sally wasn't ready to speak up. And the nurse didn't push it. Being domestic abuse informed, the nurse knew that you can't push people. You can't push victims. You can't spook them. If they are not ready to talk, they're not ready to talk. But they will when they feel safe and secure. And for Sally, this was the first time she'd ever been in a position where anybody had asked. So of course it took her by surprise. She wasn't expecting to go in that day and for someone to ask her was everything okay at home. So the nurse did what she was trained to do. She told Sally that her door was always open and if she ever needed to come back and talk or seek help, she would be there and gave her the emergency number for a local women's safety organisation. The truth is, Sally wasn't going to go back in and the nurse knew this but needed to find a way of bringing her back in because the nurse was aware abusers control their victims. So, with the GP support, they used the excuse of a contaminated or inconclusive smear result as the reason to bring her back in. The second time, Sally did confide in them. She had had time to think about the first conversation, and she was ready. In truth, Sally had been ready for a long time. She was just trapped. There was so much to navigate. First of all, there's a trauma bond. Then being in denial. How do they leave? Where do they go? They have been controlled for all of their lives. They have no access to money. And then if there are children involved, where do they take them? Do they remove them out of their school? Do they disrupt their lives? Do they go and live in one bedroom in a refuge? And they tell themselves, well, as long as he's not hurting the kids, I can take this not understanding that one parent perpetrating abuse on the other does affect the kids. But they're only looking at this in physical terms. As long as he's not shouting at the kids, as long as he's not attacking the kids, she'll be okay and she'll take it. And then when it comes to the police, many victims don't want to go to the police. And they are petrified that the moment they go to the police, it will set up a system outside their control. Because they don't want their partners prosecuted. They don't want their partners going to jail. This is the father of their children. They don't want the father of their children jailed. They do not want their children growing up thinking, Daddy's in jail. They do not want that stigma for them. And, as in Sally's case, 
as much as her children were telling her to leave to call the police. What about later on down the line if they had changed their minds? And they said to her, why did you do it? Why did you get daddy jailed? And that has to be a real consideration. And then there will be everybody finding out all the questions that will be asked. Leaving is fine. Many couples break up and have a divorce. But going to the police, that's a whole other ball game. I remember being asked the same questions. Why? Why did you go to the police? You could have just left. Don't you think you went a bit too far by going to the police? That was a bit unnecessary. But what about what he did to me? Surely that was unnecessary. But what I've come to realise, the whole focus will always be on her. And then there are the in-laws, who are family to your children, grandparents, uncles, aunts. It will disrupt that relationship because the in-laws will be telling the kids that daddy's innocent, mummy's in the wrong. They have to come home and then live with mummy. They're going to want to defend mummy. Who do they listen to? Surely I don't have to go any further in order to show what a difficult situation this leaving, going to the police is. All they want is they want it to stop. And somewhere, while the trauma bond still exists, they just want their partner to go back to the loving, kind, charming man that everybody else sees and the man they were when they first began dating. Now, I want to bring another point here, the practicalities of going to the police. As I said, Sally had been ready to go to the police for a long time, but the practicalities of doing so are also misunderstood. In Sally's case, her husband controlled her movements He kept an eye on everywhere she went. Like many abuse victims, she had been isolated. She wasn't allowed to see any of her friends. She wasn't allowed to go anywhere without his permission. And then, as with most victims, he was using technology to abuse her. So he had a tracker on her phone. He monitored every second of her movements. When she went to work, when she came back, all it took was her to be five minutes late. And that would be it. She'd get laid into hours upon hours upon hours of where were you? Who were you with? Who were you seeing? Were you with your boss? Are you fucking him? And even though he could see that she was sat in traffic, still it was, who were you sat with? Who was with you in the car? I bet it was your boss. I bet you fancy him. So then when he tracked her every movement, and if she did go to the police, Once he had seen on her tracker that she had gone to the police, returning home would not have been an option. And then where do you go from there? The kids are at school. Who's going to go and pick them up? Where do you take them? And for every reason, for every positive reason of leaving and going to the police, she will tell herself 20 more of why she shouldn't. And even if Sally wanted to go to the police, even if she managed to evade his tracking, How would she get there? Where Sally lived, all the local police stations had slowly, over a number of years, been closed down and turned into flats. And now there was this huge police station in the centre of town. But how would she get there? At least before, the local one was walkable. There was also the financial capacity to take into consideration. Because like most abuses, there was also economic abuse. First of all, there was the car. She was only allowed access to it when she went to work or when she came back. 
and he monitored the petrol gauge. He would only give her money to buy the exact amount of petrol she needed to go to work and to come back. So how could she go to the town centre, taking into account any traffic, and coming back? He controlled the bank accounts. She had to account for every penny, every millilitre of petrol. Then, of course, once she's there, where does she park? In many places, you can't pay cash anymore. You have to have a phone app. But of course, with technology abuse, she didn't have the option to download an app. She couldn't pay via her card. So when I'm in training programmes and you are telling people this, it really does surprise me there's still a case of, well, couldn't she have? Couldn't she have paid cash? Couldn't she have done this? And the best one is, well, can't she go on a bus? Please do tell me how do you get on a bus these days without a credit card, without contactless. Again, Sally lived in the London area like me and getting onto a bus with cash wasn't an option. But her card, it would have shown up on the bank account. And then on one training course, well, why didn't she walk? Again, had to remind them that local police stations are all closed down. So when there is an absolute lack of understanding that even if she wanted to go to the police, when your every being is controlled, every movement, every minute of the day has to be accounted for, every penny, your car, your petrol, your bank account is being monitored. That's if you have your own bank account. Victims cannot access the police. It is practically impossible. I'm really not sure what part of this judges don't understand. So in Sally's case, thank God for the nurse and the GP's practice, who then facilitated with the local women's safety agency, and they arranged for the police to come to the surgery on a day when Sally would be in, because Sally was ready to leave, but she knew he wouldn't make it easy. And in her naivety, Sally thought that if an authority like the police were aware, and her husband knew that the police were aware, that would afford her a degree of safety. Unfortunately, it did anything but... Because that's the thing about abuse safety. There is no blanket strategy. It all comes down to the individual place, the individual surgery or the trust. And even if there is a strategy, it will all depend on the individual managers, the practice managers. And that is how left to chance helping abuse victims are. On the 16th of April 2022, an article appeared in the Oxford Mail by the journalist Fran Way. Fran wanted to test the scheme Ask for Annie out to see how effective it was within the Oxford area. Let me explain what Annie is. The Home Office rolled out a national scheme called Ask for Annie, which stands for Action Needed Immediately. What this scheme is meant to achieve is that if a victim of abuse cannot find a way to escape their abuser or their abusive situation, they can go to any participating pharmacy and ask for Annie, where they will be able to obtain help and from that point on should be taken into a consulting room and if needed the police can be called or they can access support through a helpline or service. And I have to say, in my professional opinion, schemes like this, especially for people like Sally, who were struggling to find methods to leave, sounds like a godsend. And it's a shame I didn't know about this until Fran's article. Myself, along with many other advocates, would also say this initiative should be available in many everyday places, especially supermarkets. 
So, back to Fran's investigation. One of the pharmacies to sign up to the scheme was the high street chain Boots. Fran visited seven of the Boots in her area to test the effectiveness of the scheme. And the result was disappointing to say the least. In one of the stores, Fran asked, Is Annie here? Only for a staff member to say, We don't have an Annie. In another Boots, although they didn't have a pharmacy, Fran again asked if Annie was here, only for the staff member to say she didn't know an Annie, and then proceeded to laugh, shook her head and shrugged her shoulders. But the most distressing one was when a staff member said no to there being an Annie there and then proceeded to laugh and tell his colleagues. As Fran walked out the store, she could hear them laughing, and as she says, I wasn't sure what the joke was. Only two stores out of the seven visited acted appropriately and offered help. But she was laughed at twice. And even if the staff members didn't know about Annie, they're working in pharmacies where people are going in with all sorts of ailments, feeling silly, embarrassing problems. Surely on any level, just an air of maturity and empathy is a must, even if someone is asking for something you are unaware of. There's also a similar scheme in bars and nightclubs called Ask Angela, where if someone wants to escape a date or they feel in danger, they can go up to the bar and ask to speak to Angela, where help will be immediately offered. And similar to Ask Annie, this has been put to the test a number of times by journalists and shown many times it doesn't work. The bar staff are unaware or they don't know who or what Angela is. So strategies need to be more than this all-dancing, all-singing media campaign. There's no point in having posters up for Ask Angela in nightclubs. There's no point in advertising for Ask Annie in pharmacies if the place in question doesn't follow through. And it all comes down to the discretion of one manager believing whether it is worth rolling out this scheme or not. Surely this can't be okay with the Home Office. So, back to Sally. If there had been another practice nurse on shift, a locum, an agency nurse, then Sally receiving help may never have happened. And this is so important and that's why third-party help is needed. That's why organisations need to be trauma-informed. So many victims, they're not in a position where they can think for themselves. They can't see a way out. So that's why it is vital for another person to slowly instigate that thought pattern, gently allow it to enter the victim's consciousness. Not in a bullish, well, why didn't you leave? If it had not been for a medical professional in both cases, nurse for Sally, doctor for Holly, there could really be a possibility that in both cases, either they would have been killed or brought to a stage where they would have committed suicide as a way out. There needs to be more support services for people escaping domestic violence. Trauma-informed professionals in schools, in the medical profession, in the judiciary, everywhere is so important. In the next episode, I'm going to look at what happens when a third party get it wrong. In particular, the police. Memoirs of a Mackenzie Friend is sponsored by IamLIP.com. If you are struggling with any of the issues discussed in today's episode, 
please go to www.imlip.com where you can receive further information and help. Disclaimer. The stories mentioned in this episode are fictional accounts based on and adapted from real life experiences. Due to the repetitive nature of the family court, any similarities to any other cases are purely coincidental.